Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Runnymede Radio. This episode features Dr. Ryan Alford, an associate professor at the Boralaskan Faculty of Law at Lakehead University. Dr. Alford received his doctorate in public, constitutional, and international law from the University of South Africa. He also holds a master's degree from the University of Oxford and a law degree from New York University. He is called to the Bar of Ontario and is a bencher of the Law Society of Ontario. In 2017, his book entitled Permanent State of Emergency, Unchecked Executive Power and the Demise of the Rule of Law was published by McGill-Queen's University Press. Later this year, the same publisher will release his book entitled Seven Absolute Rights, Recovering the Foundations of Canada's Rule of Law. In this episode, Dr. Alfred speaks with Mark Mancini, the National Director of the Runnymede Society, about emergency powers in Canada. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Runnymede Radio. Well, welcome, loyal listeners, to this uh, week's episode of Runnymede Radio, uh, occurring under quarantine conditions this week. And on that topic, we are very excited and lucky to have here Dr. Ryan Alford, who's an emergency powers expert, to help us wade through the issues involving emergency, the quarantines, and what the federal government can do in these circumstances. So thank you, uh, Dr. Alford, for being with us today. My pleasure, Mark. Uh, I think I can offer a unique perspective here. Uh, in addition to being a scholar of emergency powers, I published a book in 2017 about how the post-9-11 emergency powers in the United States affected its constitutional framework going forward. So there's certainly a cautionary example there to draw upon. In addition to that, I'm also a constitutional historian. So I have a unique perspective on what exists within our constitutional framework which is a little bit more complex than that in the United States, which hopefully should be relevant to this discussion as well. That's great. And thank you again for taking the time uh, to bring your considerable expertise to this question. So I guess I'd like to just jump in uh, from a pretty high level of abstraction here and just to set the stage for our listeners. So from a constitutional perspective, and, and just as a matter of the positive law, what are the respective constitutional pro- powers of the provinces and federal government um, over matters that we might broadly call emergencies? What's the division of labor here? I think you're beginning in the right place, but I think it would be helpful for us to talk about the premise of your question first. So I think that's something that a lot of people gloss over that you don't, is that this is, in fact, something determined by the Constitution. So you might hear political theorists talking about this question, and they would say something like, well, the power to declare an emergency exists outside of the Constitution. So there's a lot of maxims that go to that question, one of them being necessity knows no law, or salus populi, the welfare of the people, um, uh, suprema lex esto is the supreme law, or shall be the supreme law. Uh, All of these notions from political science are really contrary to our constitutional tradition, which locates the power to declare an emergency and emergency powers under that declaration within the constitutional order. So just to be pellucid here, within our constitutional order, there's no such thing as martial law. There's no power to suspend the constitution. All of the powers of the executive derive from these statutes that allow for emergency declarations. And both those statutes and the resolutions under that statute must comply with the Constitution, which, as you mentioned, contains a division of powers. Uh, They also contain other constitutional limitations under the Charter, which I'm sure we'll get into later. So just to make sure we're clear on that, the notion is they're not derived from necessity. And in fact, it's the response to that argument that emergency powers are derived from necessity that drove constitutional development in our constitutional history. 
So where political scientists would point to Thomas Hobbes, Leviathan, theories like that, running all the way through Carl Schmitt, our constitutional history is defined very much against that tradition. Uh, and that goes back to a really important constitutional document called the Petition of Right, which was written about 400 years ago. So all of these structural features of our constitution, which locate the emergency powers within the constitution, are really important to the creation of our constitutional order, particularly in the 17th century. We inherited those in 1867 and we built on them going forward. So just to get to your particular question, so the division of powers is established in the Constitution Act 1867, and it says that the provinces have particular powers and the federal government has particular powers. It's really important to remember that we don't have a system of federal supremacy, where the federal government could just say, well, no, it's big boy time. It's time for the federal government to take out over. They have to respect that constitutional division of powers. Uh, and so there is a residual power within Section 92 of the Constitution which creates what's called a power, what's frequently called in constitutional law, the POG power, the power to legislate for the peace, order, and good government of Canada. But that is expressly residual. And something that will be important to our discussion is that's also premised upon provincial inability to handle the problem. So insofar as what we're dealing with here is a public welfare emergency, this is dealing with public health, the power for public health is primarily, under that division of powers, a provincial responsibility. So the federal government is going to have to overcome some hurdles to become involved. And they can, of course, meet some of those hurdles already. Certain others, uh, the Emergencies Act is being mentioned, will be far more difficult to overcome in this context. So that's very interesting. So you mentioned uh, the Emergencies Act, and you mentioned that a lot of this is driven by statutes. So what federal statutes uh, bear on this question? We've heard a lot about uh, just throwing names out there, we've heard about the Quarantine Act, we've heard about the Emergencies Act, uh, we've, we've heard about other statutes. So which ones are most relevant and perhaps what do, they, what do they do, how do they bear on this question? Well, I think that there's quite a number of statutes that are relevant. Uh, just to throw in one that you haven't mentioned thus far, there's the Aeronautics Act. And that's been invoked already. There was an interim order under the Aeronautics Act which said that even a Canadian citizen if they're trying to get on a, flame, a plane to repatriate themselves to Canada, if they have the symptoms of the COVID-19 virus, they're being told that they're inadmissible to those flights. And that's a subject of some controversial uh, commentary already. I know the Canadian Civil Liberties Association is actively involved uh, in analyzing the constitutionality of that interim order. And I have some thoughts which I've shared with them. Uh, I am quite uh, concerned with that. Um, but in addition to the Aeronautics Act, you have statutes such as the Quarantine Act, as you mentioned. Uh, the Quarantine Act is also quite relevant because it pertains particularly to people crossing the border. So when you saw people being put into quarantine at the uh, Trenton um, uh, Canadian Air Force Base for 14 days after returning from Wuhan on these repatriation flights, and also people coming off a Diamond Princess cruise liner, they were told as a condition of entering Canada, they would have to comply with this mandatory order that they would be in seclusion for 14 days and subject to certain kinds of evaluation. Now, it's interesting, and this is going to be pertinent to our discussion of the Emergencies Act, that the federal government has not used all of its powers under the Quarantine Act as yet. So, for instance, people returning to Canada from the United States are still being told that the requirement to self-isolate is strongly recommended rather than mandatory. And that was the subject of some interesting comments from the Minister of Health 
uh, yesterday, if I'm not wrong. So they have extensive powers under the Quarantine Act, but those only apply to people who are coming into Canada, uh, both Canadian citizens and those who have been barred from Canada, namely non-citizens, uh, pursuant to the Quarantine Act. Uh, additional statutes uh, are quite relevant. The National Defense Act is going to be relevant. Uh, the government does not need a declaration under the Emergencies Act to get the Canadian forces involved. So there are contingency plans, particularly there's a contingency plan called Operation Laser, which allows the Canadian military to provide aid to the civil authorities. That has yet to be invoked because there hasn't been a request from either the federal government or the provincial governments. So that's just in the background. Uh, something else which is in the background is the Defense Production Act, should that be necessary, uh, which would allow the government to do certain things with respect to supply chains, with respect to requisitions. And there's a particularly important act with respect to the Emergencies Act, which ha hasn't gotten a lot of discussion. It's the Federal Emergencies Management Act. So the interesting thing about the Federal Emergencies Management Act is that it allows the federal government to channel resources to the provincial governments when they need assistance. So if we have to engage in this calculus under the Emergencies Act, which we'll discuss later, about provincial inability, one of the relevant questions is, well, what has the federal government been doing under the Emergencies Management Act to shovel resources and everything requested by the provincial authorities to the relevant provincial responders? And so far, we haven't seen very much of that. And lastly, I would say, uh, in addition to the Emergencies Act, something which is really relevant, which is lurking in the background, is the Canadian Bill of Rights. And the Canadian Bill of Rights is just a statute, but it has a certain quasi-constitutional force in that it has to be abrogated from explicitly by federal legislation. And I think that that may be in the background as one of the reasons why the federal government is reticent to invoke the Emergencies Act. Very interesting. So we talked, so you mentioned a bit about air travel, but I'd like to kind of probe the, the consequences of the federal government, say, declaring an emergency under the Emergencies Act. So what powers does that would a declaration of that sort release. So like I said, you focused on air travel, but there's been much discussion about um, mandating that people stay home. Uh, is that something that could happen under the Emergencies Act or, or are there other statutes that will play into that calculus? Uh, that's a fascinating question. I think that when you take a look at the text of the Federal Emergencies Act, leaving aside the conditions for properly invoking it, uh, it is actually quite narrowly tailored in what it allows the government to do. One of the reasons why is because it requires the federal government to declare the reason for the emergency. And then that creates, based on the nature of that declaration, a certain set of pertinent powers. So in this kind of an emergency, it would be what's called a public welfare emergency. So the powers under a public welfare emergency are defined in Section 8 of the Emergencies Act. And you look at that, it's narrowly tailored. You see that there are particular powers specified there. Now, if you look for one that would allow a shelter-in-place order in particular, that's hard to find. So what we see here is the regulation or prohibition of travel to, from, or within any specified area when necessary for the protection of the health or safety of individuals. It would actually be difficult to make an argument that you can construe that such that the specified area is every individual citizen's home. So whereas you can say this is the quarantine area, you can shut down businesses, you can do things of that nature, it might be difficult for them to say, here's the basis for a shelter-in-place order. So I have a question as to whether in Section 8 you could locate a power of the federal government to issue an order in council 
that would create a shelter in place order. Now, an interesting thing about the Emergencies Act and the reason why it has this form is because it was a replacement for the War Measures Act. And because the War Measures Act was so problematic, and the reason why we have a Federal Emergencies Act is because of concerns with the overbreadth of the War Measures Act. Essentially, the War Measures Act had something very much along the lines of the Henry VIII Clause, where it said the ordering councils could do anything the parliament could do. Now, rather than that, we have the specified categories of emergencies, and you do not have within these categories anything like a basket clause or catch-all clause. So within Section 8, you do not see anything like you would find in the provincial legislation along the lines of anything else which is necessary and proper to the management of the emergency. So the onus would be on the federal government in the resolution to locate some sort of analogous power specified in one of the specific subsections of Section 8 of the Emergencies Act. And frankly, I would be quite skeptical as to whether or not that's possible. I, uh, I have my doubts as to whether or not that would be possible. So I'm not sure where the federal power or a shelter-in-place order would come from. And I think that um, that's an important message to send. People are thinking that the Emergencies Act is just essentially the emergency break, something that is more powerful than any other statutory context. And that's simply not the case because of the power of the Emergencies Act and because it was tailored in response to the abuses of the War Measures Act, which, of course, included the internment of Japanese Canadians until 1950. Right. So you, I mean... The next question I kind of wanted to focus on, you touched on a bit, and, and you, you mentioned that the Emergencies Act is more narrowly tailored than it's than the War Measures Act. But what are some of the other limits to the federal government's powers uh, under the tranche of, tranche of emergency legislation? Like, is there, is there an opportunity for judicial review? Does Parliament have oversight? Can you kind of elucidate those limits uh, for our listeners? Right. Let me start with Parliament. So there's much more parliamentary control than there was under the War Measures Act. So when the Ordering Council invoking the War Measures Act, I say by the cabinet, the cabinet can invoke the Emergencies Act the same way it could invoke the War Measures Act, uh, issue a declaration of emergency. But right away, that triggers a requirement that parliament reconvene to assess whether or not that declaration was properly made. So that's important. Um, Although, given the requirements of quorum, it's possible that what would happen is that there will be a carefully chosen set of MPs and senators, 20 MPs and 10 senators, that would go to Ottawa, essentially just to rubber stamp the uh, declaration. But there are more important parliamentary checks in the Emergencies Act than that. Uh, first of all, it's explicitly temporary. So the suspension that exists under the Declaration of National Emergency exists for 90 days. And any extension also requires parliamentary reauthorization. And then, of course, the initial declaration only makes emergency resolutions possible. It only allows for further orders in council that comply with the specified powers under the type of emergency that's been declared. So public welfare emergency is declared, then the orders in council that follow from the cabinet can only be under Section 8. And then those need also to be approved by a special committee of parliamentarians. So there has to be something set up, and this is all in Section 6 of the Emergencies Act. If people are curious, take a look at that. There are parliamentary committees that then have to decide whether or not those resolutions should be amended or whether or not they should, in fact, be abrogated. And then they then have to report back to Parliament within a specified time, which is uh, 60 days, uh, about their decision to allow those resolutions to go into force. And so there's much more significant parliamentary control. Of course, it depends on the good faith 
of the parties that govern parliament and um, the public mood that governs how parliamentary review will be seen. Um, what is perhaps more important in a circumstance where there's a lot of public pressure for the government to act is the judicial control. So there's a number of different possibilities for judicial review. So first of all, the federal court could be involved in reviewing, um, if in fact that was something brought by civil liberties groups, whether the declaration is properly made. Because now this goes back to what is probably the most important dissent in a judgment in Canadian history, uh, Justice Bates in the reference on the Anti-Inflation Act, where he says, well, there has to be some sort of check within the judiciary about whether or not a declaration of emergency was made in good faith. So now, whether or not that would be deferential review or not, we're in uncharted territory. There's never been a declaration under the Emergencies Act, as there's never been, of course, any judicial review of this. The, the, the idea from Anti-Inflation Act per, per Bates is that the federal court would be empowered to say, well, let's take a look at whether or not this was properly made. And of course, that would involve an assessment, of course, as I mentioned previously, of the provincial inability and pursuant to the Emergencies Act, whether any of the other federal statutes would have provided for similar powers. So there is a framework against which this can be evaluated. And then, of course, each individual declaration, there's going to be consideration of whether or not this is warranted by our division of powers, uh, which, of course, is not subject to any requirement of necessity or proportionality. It's just a question of whether or not they are invading provincial jurisdiction. Um, and then whether or not they are charter compliant, something I think we'll return to later, whether or not we can justify this, uh, because all, everything that's being contemplated here, of course, does limit charter rights, whether or not those limitations can be seen as a reasonable limitation, uh, which, of course, can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. All right. So that's let's let's turn to that right now, because I think that's an issue that is captivating some legal scholars and observers. So I think you've answered there are charter implications to the federal government's uh, use of emergency powers or declaration of an emergency. Uh, you mentioned the CCLA's concerns under the Aeronautics Act, but are there what, do you, what is your view of the reasonableness and the proportionality of limitations uh, on rights and freedoms in this case? Is it something the federal is it an onus the federal government can bear, or are the charter concern do the charter concerns outweigh? The federal government's ability to justify in this case? Well, uh, that's a fascinating question, and it's one that's being kicked around quite a lot in various fora. But what I find particularly problematic is the assertion that just because this crisis that we're facing is at such, of such magnitude that the Charter really isn't all that relevant, that surely we can justify this under Section 1 of the Oaths Test. And there's a couple of reasons why that's problematic. So let me, um, let me come to the particular example that you mentioned for an illustration of this. So let's take a look at that interim order under the Aeronautics Act. So you have a Canadian citizen who's trying to return to Canada. Let's just say from, um, from the United States or from Peru, where there are a number of Canadians who, uh, who wish to return to Canada. And they're being told, well, no, you can't get on this plane because we've determined that that is not wise because you would spread the virus potentially to other people on the plane. Uh, and we'd rather that you wait until you have no more symptoms. Okay, so think about the nature of the limitation on that person. Okay, if that person's located in Peru, where they might not have ready access to medical care or medical care of the highest quality, uh, depending on their health and their age, that might effectively be a death sentence. So we're talking not merely about the rights to mobility or their liberty interest. We're talking about the, the right to life under Section 7. 
So right away, we have a question about whether or not a court would say under Section 1 that you can justify an infringement of someone's Section 7 right to life. Because again, remember, there has never been a decision of the Supreme Court that has said that Section 1 can be used to justify right, the, uh, the limitation of a Section 7 right. Although there is some interesting uh, obiter uh, in uh, cases like Carter, but much more where you see Section 7 being mobilized as something much more akin to a positive right than a negative right, which, of course, is why I found the extension of the Section 7 right in Carter so problematic. But again, um, just before we, we move on to, the, to, uh, to those more recondite issues, I would also mention that it's not just the charter which is relevant here. Something that I pointed out to the CCLA, and I'll be following up on this uh, this afternoon, uh, take a look at Section 2A of the Cadian Bill of Rights, right? So the Cadian Bill of Rights says no federal law may authorize or affect the arbitrary detention, imprisonment, or exile of any person. Now think about the requirement why this was put into force in 1960. We saw the way that the War Measures Act had been abused in the course of Second World War, the First World War. I mentioned um, the situation of Japanese-Canadian internment. There was, of course, the famous case reference three persons of Japanese race, where they made exactly that argument. They said, we are here being exiled from Canada. British subjects who lived in Canada, British subjects of Japanese origin who had been born in Canada, were subject under one of the orders issued under the War Measures Act to being sent to Japan. They were going to be forcibly exiled to Japan, right? So here the question would be under the Cadian Bill of Rights with respect to this interim order, whether or not this affects the exile of any person. And an exile being defined as casting someone uh, out of Canada. And of course, it doesn't just say authorize, it says authorize or affect. So here I would argue that this is affecting the exile of the Canadian citizen. So just as an example, what it tells you is there are more sources that we need to look at than just the charter. But then, of course, the primary one is going to be the charter. Now, now if we take a less extreme example than the right to life, where it does seem as if Section 1 would probably be applicable at least as a potential argument for the federal government. Well, people have said, well, the courts are inclined to be deferential in these circumstances. Well, there's two issues there. I don't think that a court is necessarily just going to ignore the requirement of minimal impairment. So for those people who are not familiar with the structure of Section 1, it, it has to be authorized by law, prescribed by law. So it has to be some, not just merely an application that uh, you know, some, some official within the federal government says, I'm going to interpret this regulation such that you have no uh, Section 7 right. Uh, and then it also has to be a pressing and substantial governmental objective. Of course, that's probably easy to meet. It has to be a rational connection. That's likely to meet. But then we run into minimal impairment. So when you have measures, and this is true for the provincial governments as well, such as order shutting down churches, the question is, well, what could have been done that's a little bit less charter infringing than closing down a synagogue, a mosque, or a church, right? I mean, could we say, okay, every, a public health official has the right to inspect the services, people you know, shall be uh, engaging in social distancing practice, perhaps the length of the service has to be truncated as, as much as the official, the religious officiant thinks is possible, given the religious requirements. And then here's the problem too, we see how Section 1 really isn't well-developed uh, to, to balance these kind of considerations. 
I mean, I can think of many examples in this context where you say, how do we do a section one analysis here? Someone is saying, I want to visit my child on their deathbed. So I want to travel where there's a travel ban in place because it is worth more to me than anything in the world that I be there at my child's deathbed as they pass away, whether from uh, this illness or whether from another illness in these circumstances. And so you say, well, how do we engage in something like utilitarian calculus there? And I would suggest that judiciary is going to say, well, the easiest way to resolve that is through minimal impairment, because then we don't have to do this. We don't have to say, well, then how does someone's religious rights or things of that nature, how are they balanced against public health? I think courts will look towards minimal impairment for that. So I think that people who are very blithe in saying that courts are not going to entertain these types of challenges merely because of the possibility of sexual invocation of oaks, right? Because it, this is really, really frustrating to me that many, many observers, particularly political scientists, just say ahead of the analysis, before we consider whether or not the provision is charter infringing, oh, well, don't worry. If it is, well, section one will solve everything. That's not how it's supposed to work. Even if we leave aside the question of this is the federal government, such as the Canadian Bill of Rights supplies or any other uh, any other rights creating instrument other than the charter. So you're you're sort of concerned about the way observers are looking at Section One in a reflexive way, as sort of a full answer to all the potential charter claims that one could raise in these circumstances. So so yeah, and let me uh, draw you back to the book that I published in 2017. So in permanent state of emergency, uh, we had the 9-11 attacks. And I want to remind people that that just wasn't one day. I was living in the United States. It went on for months. We didn't know when the next shoe was going to drop. Uh, there was a constant speculation about where the next attack would be, uh, often which was highly irrational. It wasn't driven by anything sensible. And then within months of the 9-11 attacks, you then had the anthrax scare. So people don't remember that. There was anthrax sent through the mail. Uh, and it was sent to, you know, uh, federal legislators, people like that. And inside it said um, not, that was 9-11. This is next. Death to America. Right. I mean, it, it purported to be coming from the same terrorist organization that that organized 9-11 attacks. And, and the level of fear around that was extreme to, to the point where people look back at that period, those months after 9-11. And they say it was if the entire country had post-traumatic stress disorder. And as someone who lived in the United States, that to me seems quite accurate. So here's how that type of analysis of necessity and proportionality played out under those circumstances. So you had someone really influential in the government by the name of Dick Cheney, who had this theory called the 1% doctrine, where he said, here's the way we need to think about these threats. If there's even a 1% chance that this might happen, we have to treat it as if it's a certainty. Because what we're talking about is mass casualties. Because what we're talking about is possibly millions of people dead. So I, I remember when Jose Padilla, who, by the way, uh, was when he finally got to a criminal trial, this is a so-called dirty bomber, right? When he finally got to a criminal trial, we said, no, he was not involved in anything of that nature, right? He was convicted essentially for affiliating himself with Al-Qaeda, but he was not in any way involved in a dirty bomb plot, right? So they said, well, you know, that could, that could be hundreds of thousands of casualties, right? So what we need to do is we need to arrest this person. We need to deny him habeas corpus, and then we have to put him in a military brig, and then we have to essentially torture this person, right? Which is what they did. They did all of these things, contrary to certain absolute or non-derogable rights, both in international law and U.S. domestic law. Why? Because we have to treat this as if this is certain because of the nature of mass casualties. Now, 
that it's really problematic that people let that kind of analysis run wild, where they say, we feel as if this is going to be so severe, what could possibly be balanced against it? You put any kind of civil liberty on this. Now, go back and take a look at, at you know, 1941, right? When we're talking about the war effort, our brave boys overseas, what have you, people would have said the exact same sort of thing about Japanese internment. And that turned out to be the biggest blot on Canada's legal escutcheon in its history is the way that we treated Japanese Canadians from 1941 to 1950 on the basis of exactly that kind of utilitarian logic. So we got a real problem with people applying that in that fashion to say, well, look at you know, what would happen if we didn't do this. That's really not the way that we should be doing this. And we really do have to look at, well, if we somehow tailor this a little bit more narrowly, how much of this would we get? And that's why I'm suggesting that there'll be some, hopefully some judicial appetite for requiring the government to make a strong showing on minimal impairment. As, of course, the Oaks test requires, the onus is on the government to make that showing. Everyone is arguing now as if it's the people who are saying our rights are going to be infringed who need to say, here's why my rights trump the right to life of hundreds of thousands of people. That's not the onus. The onus is on the government to say, here is why nothing less than this can achieve this. But I got to tell you, in an, attitude, in an environment like this, very much like the environment after 9-11, you see the government under severe pressure to merely do something. And you have this kind of syllogism, something needs to be done. This is something, therefore this needs to be done. And that shouldn't cut any ice with us. It shouldn't any, cut any ice with our legislators and it certainly shouldn't uh, be found convincing by our judiciary. I think that's uh, an important warning that the, the onus and the Oaks test is on is on the government. And it should be a warning that we, would, we, we shouldn't require, but yes, I think it's something that's very apt right now uh, to be sure. So we've talked about, I think, we've talked about the federal government context. I'd like to just before we close, bring us to the provinces because as you mentioned the provinces have uh in their health jurisdiction have a lot to do with this question so what kind of powers do the provinces have over emergencies and what sort of provincial measures have been announced to date uh that are you know that fulfill these powers that's a great question mark i think it's the right question too because it turns out the provinces actually have more power than the federal government so that's going to be relevant to this decision to evoke the Emergencies Act, which we have to be really worried about as a precedent, believe me. Uh, and that's, that's my considered view after watching the powers of the American government after 9-11 just metastasize and become permanent. Again, the title of that book is Permanent State of Emergency. So the, the provincial governments have far more power. So to take a look at Ontario just as an example. The relevant statutory framework for public welfare emergency exists within the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act, which is Ontario legislation. So in Section 702, you see the power to declare an emergency related to public health, public welfare. And unlike the Emergencies Act, it does contain a catch-all clause. So if you're looking for uh, a statutory power to invoke a um, a shelter-in-place order, it would certainly come from a provincial government and not from the federal government. So I, I find that, by the way, really encouraging. And the reason why that's the case is I think that the situations among the provinces may well differ. When I hear people saying, well, what we need is uniform rules here, what I want to tell them is, well, consider the principle of subsidiarity. The notion is, I mean, you have far more connection to your municipal government, who, by the way, probably has the power to declare an emergency under this provincial act, certainly in Ontario, 
municipalities have the power to declare a municipal emergency and put in more coercive measures if necessary than both the province or the federal government. You also have more of a connection to your provincial government. Now, if they're, they're responding to the particularities within the province, I'm speaking to you today from Thunder Bay, where there has been not one single confirmed case of COVID-19 in the municipality. And there has been considerable testing, right? So there's a reason why we have regional public health authorities with powers. They're responding to the particular circumstances of a particular place and a particular time. I mean, depending on whether or not you shut down travel within what you call the containment phase, or whether you shut it down in what's called the mitigation phase, as to what kind of coercive measures you need to impose within the community, right? So the principle of subsidiarity would say it's better that the decision makers be the people who are closest on the ground to the people that they're regulating. So I do not see the need of, but if there's misconception that, well, the federal government is the authority that matters, right? They are the real government. The provincial governments are not really real governments. And again, that's not our constitutional order. We have a divided sovereignty. I mean, that's the way that I would, I would put it in practice at the very least, between the, the provincial crown and the federal crown. And their responsibilities are quite different under our constitution. And that's a good thing because they can respond to the more appropriate circumstances at the particular place and time, and through their legislation, allow for further delegation to municipalities, local public health authorities, to respond appropriately to what's in place there. So I'm not particularly concerned with the broader powers that exist under, let's say, Ontario's Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act. Of course, I do think that the charter analysis is relevant. There is precatory language in that statute that says, of course, this has to be charter compliant. Um, I think that's really important. And I do think that, well, um, the courts should be responsive to someone saying, so for instance, someone saying, as is the case in Ontario, hey, you've closed my church, right? This is not, this is really disproportionate, depending, of course, on what that person's views are. I mean, I don't, I don't know how a Jewish community would feel if they're being told that no, you can't have you can't have that a community of, that, of prayer within the synagogue, right? But depending upon the relevant religious views, I think the government should be required to make a showing of minimal impairment. And I think that the Sacadian Civil Liberties Association would likely be involved in that too, and so would many other civil rights and civil liberties organizations. But I do think it's appropriate that there's more power under the, um, uh, the provincial statute than the federal statute. Uh, so I'm really concerned with this political football where you see the pressure being put on the federal government, even when there really hasn't been anything akin to the necessary showing. And again, this is under both the Constitution and the Emergencies Act, that number one, the provinces are beyond their capacity or beyond their authority. And number two, that no other federal law is providing the government with the authority to do what it can do, particularly when we do not see very much under the Quarantine Act to date or under the Emergency Management Act to give those resources to the federal governments or with respect to the mobilization of the military pursuant to the National Defense Act and uh, Operation Laser. Right. Well, uh, I think the final question I'd like to ask today is, is kind of balancing everything we've talked about here uh, with the limits in the legislation, the risks imposed by COVID-19. And in your considered opinion, is there a clear reason to believe that this pandemic uh, constitutes an emergency in a constitutional sense? That would warrant action by governments, or uh, or is there a concern about overreach here? And I we touched on this a bit, but I'd kind of like to, to wrap up to get your view uh, square on on that question. 
So I think this takes us back to the first question. So if we consider an emergency, something defined by statute and which has constitutional limits, we then have to look at the legislation and the constitution to say whether or not this is appropriate. And I do think that we can meet that test with respect to provincial declarations of emergency, public welfare, public health emergencies. I absolutely do. Uh, and what that encourages us to remember is that we have to see the powers as they're defined in the statute as supervised by the Constitution, particularly the requirements of the Charter, to see how those powers should be exercised. If we remember that and we don't make the mistake of thinking an emergency is something that allows the government to turn off the Constitution, to say that there's no longer any judicial review about whether or not these particular measures prescribed by law are in fact necessary and proportional within the relevant constitutional framework and whether or not they are within the statutory powers of the relevant authority. So that is a contrary judgment to my assessment of the Federal Emergencies Act. I think that a federal declaration of emergency would clearly not be warranted at this time. And furthermore, there'd be constitutional problems with that. And I think there could be a challenge at the outset with the fact that this is not outside of the capacities of the province and with the fact that the relevant other laws have not been maximized to mobilize a federal response to this. And lastly, I would just say, if we hear any sort of talk from the government about how desperate times call for desperate measures, these are constitutional niceties. And, and to the credit of the federal government, we have heard nothing like this to date, in my opinion. We would have to respond very forcefully and say, no, the fact that we have a constitution is a response to the fact that similar arguments of that type were made by governments. Our system of constitutional governance, the kind of constitutional monarchy that we have, right, with responsible government, all of those things, as it was created in what's called the constitutional settlement of the glorious revolution, was a direct response to this argument as it was made in the 17th century. But there is an extraordinary prerogative to protect the people which exists outside of law, that no one can question it, certainly not the judiciary, uh, that is precisely why we have a constitution. And it's for that reason that I'm really uh, quite enthusiastic that I have a book coming out in May that discusses this constitutional history in particular, and which discusses whether or not there are any rights that exist actually underneath the constitutional rights of the Charter or the 1867 Act. So that book's called Seven Absolute Rights. It talks about that constitutional tradition. Just to um, put it in sharper context, so the Emergencies Act, in its preamble, it mentions the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights. And it mentions that in that convention, there are certain rights which are considered non-derogable, which is to say that no matter what the emergency, certain rights may not be infringed. One of which, of course, is the right not to be killed without due process. Another one is the right not to be tortured. The reason why those rights are considered non-derogable in international law is because of our constitutional tradition which we inherited in 1867. That what, what entered into the unwritten constitution of the United Kingdom, which was a beacon for everyone around the world when it comes to taking rights seriously, we inherited that in 1867, and that became the basis for saying that these rights can never be infringed, something that which received a lot of reinforcement after the Second World War, uh, after contrary arguments were made, for instance, at the Nuremberg trials. So I'd like to encourage people, if they have an interest in that constitutional history, uh, if this emergency is still ongoing in May, which I think it very well may, uh, no pun intended, 
uh, it is available to order potentially through Amazon. I just found out that Indigo uh, was closed down nationally. But uh, you do want to take a look at that or pre-order it through Amazon. The book is called Seven Absolute Rights. I think it gives people some context for the analysis that I've given today on this podcast. Very interesting. Well, uh, I'd like to thank you again on behalf of the Renegade Society, Dr. Alford, for taking the time to chat about this today. Again, uh, his upcoming book, Seven Absolute Rights, uh, coming out in May, hopefully available from Amazon. Um, thank you again, Dr. Alford, for your time today. We really do appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you and stay safe. Thank you. Same to you. Thank you for listening to Runnymede Radio. To learn more about the Runnymede Society, visit our website at runnymedesociety.ca or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.